0: text this morning comes from Romans chapter 8. I encourage you to turn there in your Bible. In my work with prisoners and ex-offenders, I've discovered that laws and threats of punishment are poor motivators for change. Such persons need more than laws and promise of rewards and threats of punishment to truly reform their lives. They need relationships to be truly effective in keeping people out of prison and to move on to have productive lives requires mentors, a community of people to support and guide and encourage them towards true growth and change. It requires the investment of others. Well, as we wrap up this three-part series on the Holy Spirit and the Law of God, we consider today the great investment that God has made in us by his Spirit that we might grow to please him and find true joy for our souls. I begin reading actually in verse 8 through verse 17. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. An inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we will once again ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just a little over a year ago, as we moved into our house, uh, we knew that our home had not been lived in for over six months. Thankfully, the prior owners had maintained it well and kept the lights and the electricity and power and the water flowing. But as you may have heard various stories in the last five years in the aftermath of our nation's housing bubble, there are littered across the land many empty homes from which mortgage holders walk away from underwater mortgages, leaving behind their neighbors who don't like vacancies. They become eyesores with growing lawns and maintenance problems, broken windows and other repair issues. Even squatters will come in and take advantage of an empty home that only adds further pain to lowering home values. I heard the story of one desperate realtor eager for a sale for, of a home that was on a block of mostly empty houses In order to make the home more attractive to the buyer, he actually paid people to come and pretend to be homeowners and park their cars on the driveway and have kids playing outside and taking care of the grass and operating the grill. Well, obviously, such an act was a charade, a pretense of community life on a block that was really dead. A home without people in it, to animate it, to draw resources into it, is effectively dead. Without water and electric and gas, the home does not function. In a similar way, the human body, without the Holy Spirit, is dead. Now, sadly, there are some who claim to be Christians, but in many ways are pretending like this realtor scam, who have no more life in them than an abandoned house just as a home needs a dweller to improve it, to revive it, so people must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit that they might truly live and please God. We began with verse 8, which says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that word flesh can also be interpreted as our sin nature. And so we discover afresh today. That if we are to be followers of Christ, we are alive by the Spirit. And we have an obligation to please God as his well-loved children. Verses 9 through 11 establish this point that those of us who are in Christ, who are believers in Christ, though their body is dead, in the flesh, our spirit is a life being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9, Paul clarifies that anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Christ. And this teaching echoes the words Jesus offered to Nicodemus, that one must be born again of the Holy Spirit. Verse 10 goes on to establish that though that our our body is dead, our our flesh, our sin nature is effectively spiritually bankrupt. It can do no spiritual good. It cannot please God in any way. And that's in, in, in radical contrast to God's intent. In the beginning, God created people in the body to serve and please him. But as a consequence of our first parents' rebellion, Curse entered the world, and corruption spoiled all of human nature, making it impossible for us in the flesh to obey God in true righteousness and holiness. When God introduced the law of Moses, it did not fix the problem, nor did God intend it to. Rather, we learn from Scripture that the law is weakened by our own sin nature. It only serves to condemn us. As Paul explains elsewhere in Romans and his letter to the Galatians, the law was put into effect to manifest and show God's holiness, convict us of our own failing to keep it, and to bring us to a realization that we need a Savior. We need one who can fulfill the law in our place. We need one who can pacify and satisfy the wrath of God. The entire Old Testament of laws and sacrifices are pointing forward to fulfillment in Christ. The one who can meet the righteous requirements of the law, the one who can satisfy God's standards in our place, and the one who bestows upon us a righteous status that we might be acceptable to God. And though our body, our flesh is dead in sin, if you're in Christ, you have been made alive before God. Sin no longer reigns over you. Rather, righteousness reigns over you. You're standing before God as righteous as God sees Christ in us, having applied the seal of redemption through the Holy Spirit. When I was in high school, I read Steve Callahan's memoir entitled Adrift the story of his 76 day journey in the Atlantic Ocean on a raft. Steve Callahan had left the Canary Islands to go to the Bahamas on his sailboat when his when a storm caused his sailing vessel to capsize. He was able to gather inflate his, his uh, rescue raft and just enough supplies to last about a week or two. But at the end of that time, he was desperate for water and for food. He figured out how to use some solar stills to convert just enough ocean water into fresh water to survive. He also managed to craft a crude spear to catch fish and eat. From that point on, he had to endure attacks from sharks and even a, a leak to his raft that almost put an end to him. And when he was rescued by fishermen, he was barely alive. Imagine being lost at sea you are surrounded by water, but you cannot drink it. You are surrounded by wildlife, but you cannot access it. The ocean is effectively dead to you. So is the nature of God's law for those of us with a sin nature. We cannot utilize it. We cannot do anything about it. it we are effectively dead to it unless we have flotation, unless we have protection, unless we have something to refresh it. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit gives us water to drink. It gives us spiritual food and sustenance and enables us to rise above rather than sink to the depths towards our death. The Spirit gives us life, strength, enables us to thrive on the ocean of God's grace. Well, it's the same Spirit in verse 11, the same Spirit that God used to raise Jesus from the dead that gives life to us. And I point out to here for believers that to have the Holy Spirit does not require a second conversion. If you are a true believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. We reject the teaching that says there's a two-tier Christianity of a spiritual Christian and a carnal Christian. Rather, we insist that if you know Christ, you have the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in you and has raised you. And it's this very same Spirit that raised Jesus was also the Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. And it's that same Spirit that leads you and I in the wilderness, in the valley, the various trials and difficulties and temptations to endure the, the ebbs and flows of life and will eventually raise us in glory when our fashioning will be completely remade into the likeness of Christ. We tend to forget that truth. There are days that we don't feel very spiritual. There are days that we just feel in the flesh overwhelmed by sin and temptation. It's oftentimes the case for me that I need a refresher in the gospel. I've learned over the years that none of us ever graduates from Gospel 101. We need the gospel over and over and over again to renew us, to revive us, to reinflate us. And there's no better place to go than Paul's letter to the Romans where he establishes in Romans 5 that we have peace with God. We who are dead in sin, dead in the first Adam, have been made alive in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6 affirming that you and I have died with Christ. We have been buried with Christ, and we've been raised up with Christ. And then in Romans 7, Paul tackles this this very thorny, difficult issue of why is it that if I'm a believer, I still am tempted? Why do I still struggle? Why is my flesh at war in my desires and inclinations with the law of God and the Spirit of God? And it causes us to cry out for deliverance. Who will rescue me from this body of death, Paul says? And Romans 8 brings us to a place where we recognize how desperately we need life in the Spirit. And part of our sanctification, part of our walk with God is learning to yield to the Spirit on a daily basis, letting go of control, humbly admitting our sin, acknowledging our weakness, embracing the glorious goodness of God's grace, learning daily dependent trust in His faithfulness to abide with Christ the true vine apart from whom you can do nothing, to ask and to receive, to knock and pound on the gates of heaven that we might receive refreshment and renewal in life in the Spirit. Well, those of us who have been made alive by the Spirit have an obligation. We have a new allegiance. We are no longer debtors to sin. Rather, we... Our debtors to the Spirit who lives within us. Our debt was too much to bear. Like the servant who owed his master an astronomical amount of debt, we have been pardoned from a debt that we could never repay. And so we are no longer obligated to it. We no longer serve our sin, but rather we owe our all to the Spirit to participate with him, to cooperate with him, that we might put off our selfish ways. In Victor Hugo's classic historical novel Les Miserables that has been made famous on theater and on the screen, we're introduced to Jean Valjean, a thief, who becomes a fugitive, a man running away from the law. And at one critical turning point, In Jean Valjean's life, he seeks refuge in a church and is shown kindness by a bishop. But in the night, Jean Valjean betrays that kindness by stealing several valuables from the church, only to be later apprehended by the police. He insists that these were gifts given to him, and the police bring him back before the bishop. The bishop mercifully Validates everything Valjean says and even graciously goes the next step, telling him that he had forgotten to take more items candlesticks made, uh, candlestick holders made of silver. And so the police, satisfied, depart, and in private, the bishop says to Valjean to change, to live your life as an honest man, something that will haunt him the rest. Of his life, and he makes and and as as he wrestles with these words, recognizing there is a debt that he cannot repay. He has an obligation to leave his life of theft and to live true. And as he reflects upon the grace shown him, he does change. He does make resolve, and though imperfectly, does lead a life exemplary. As he rises to a place of prosperity and ability to help others in need. Like Valjean, we are debtors to grace. Our debt to sin has been paid. And yet, remaining is a debt to God that is infinite, and you and I cannot pay it. Nor does God seek us to pay it. Rather, we have an obligation that is a new allegiance, because we are no longer under the tyranny of sin. We must serve it no longer. We have a new master, During the Civil War, as the Union Army advanced towards victory, the Lincoln administration provided an opportunity for people in the South to make an oath of allegiance to the federal government and to the Union. And he even made this oath available to prisoners of war who'd been captured in battle, these who wanted to reunite with their families and go back home, even though knowing that many of them would turn back on their own and rejoined the fighting with the Confederate efforts. And yet Lincoln was not too concerned late in 1864 because the South was fighting a losing battle. Those who would go back on their oath would not prove too much harm with victory so close at hand. But earlier in the war, President Lincoln pronounced the, the Emancipation Proclamation a bold declaration guaranteeing the freedom of slaves who were beckoned to leave their southern masters, join the north, and even enlist in the fighting for the preservation of the Union. Many slaves left their plantations. And leader among them, Frederick Douglass, informed the president that there were still many slaves in the south completely unaware of the proclamation. And there were others who were too scared to attempt and risk walking away from their chains. Their masters were good at hiding the news of emancipation. And so Lincoln commissioned free colored men to go to the South to proclaim emancipation, to recruit men to leave and to join the North in the effort to preserve the Union to preserve freedom for their fellow man. Well, like slaves set free, many of us remain in our chains due to ignorance and fear. Like liberated Israel, who was tempted to return to Egypt because it was safe, familiar compared to the threats of wandering in the wilderness, you and I are prone to return to our old ways in the flesh. We, like Control. We pursue the temporal pleasures of the flesh that only leave us more guilty and unsatisfied. You and I are no better than the addict or the ex offender who finds that his old habits die hard. We need more than willpower. We need God's Holy Spirit to fulfill this joyful obligation. We need God's grace to take insults, to let go of control, to give up on patterns of manipulation that govern our households. We need the God Spirit to overcome our insecurities, to overcome our timidity, to be bold to confront injustice and unhealth among our relational networks. You see, the gospel is truth that shines light into our hearts to expose us for what we truly are but it doesn't crush us. It gives us new strength to admit our weakness because we know that we are loved and accepted, not rejected when we come to acknowledge our faults. In Christ, we have the privilege of becoming more self-aware, the ability to handle criticism, not being defensive, nor determined to convince other people or ourselves of our own rightness. The gospel enables us to take responsibility, to own our sin, to confess it, to ask forgiveness, and to walk with the Spirit in new repentance, pleasing to God. And yet we have another obligation, Paul says, to put to death the misdeeds of the body, Occasionally, we will have an ant problem in our home where the little critters work their way in to eat yummy crumbs on the floor. And I could try to kill them one by one, stamping on them like my four-year-old. Or I could try to sweep them or vacuum them up to get them out of my house, but it won't prove very effective. They will continue to find their way in. No, I need something stronger. I need an ant bait strong enough, powerful enough, that when they consume the poison, they will take it back to their bed and pass it on to their queen. And when she dies, the whole bed dies. And that doesn't permanently solve my problem, but it does keep the ants outside of the house rather than inside the house. I find our fight with sin similar. As we labor to war with our flesh and the misdeeds thereof, sometimes we try to tackle them one by one. Sometimes we think, if I can just stop this area, that I will be better. But as we subdue one area of our lives, we find others creeping in and other cracks and crevices in our broken hearts. We need more power. We need the Holy Spirit Who alone can go to the source of our hearts and kill the root of our desires for sin and give us a new heart with new desires to resist sin and genuinely please God? What are the misdeeds of your flesh? The flesh is common to all of us, and yet we all have particular kinds of flesh. We're all given to pride. Some of us may be more given to anger. Some may be more given to fear. Some of us may be given more towards judgmentalism. Others to the fear of man. What are the misdeeds of the flesh that the Holy Spirit wants to work on in your life? And will you yield control? Will you give him permission to uproot that out of your life? That you might grow in obedience and grow and pleasing God. As we continue on in our text, we find that life in the Spirit is relational. As we reflect back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, when he spoke to the Valley of Dry Bones, they were filled with the Spirit to raise up a mighty army. But we learn here in Romans 8 that God wants more than an army, more than workers and servants. God seeks children. Heirs of his kingdom. Verse 14 says that those of us who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. He says that you did not receive a spirit of slavery creeping back into fear. Jesus promised his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans, but would send the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was better for them for him to go away and to send the Holy Spirit in his place. We are not orphans caged in by fear, insecurity, and self-protection. We are children with dignity who bear the noble name of our powerful and rich father. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, wealthy landowners who did not have a legitimate heir would oftentimes select a worthy man of good character and adopt him and bestow upon him his legacy and his inheritance. It was legally binding. I'm thankful that God did not look for worthy people of good character. There would be none to be found. Thankfully, he sought the unworthy to magnify the glory of his grace, to set his affections on us, to bestow upon us the righteous status of the one who was worthy, the one who was perfect, the one who pleased God day in and day out his entire life. I've often thought about what, what, does it, what was it that drove Jesus in pleasing God, his Father. And you find in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, this, this intense intimacy of Jesus finding time with Father. For him to have the audacity to call God Father, something unsettling to the Jewish ears. And for Jesus to receive back on two occasions, at his baptism and at the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus was connected to his Father regularly by the Spirit, seeking to please him. And I have to say that it was in my college years that this truth came home to me. After being a Christian many years, stuck in a very works-based, a very performance-oriented brand, so to speak, of Christianity. It was this idea of adoption, this understanding of sonship that set me free from my very legalistic tendencies to learn a new way, to rest secure in my father's love for me, to know that I was accepted, to know that I did not have to earn his approval, I did not have to be good enough or measure up, but rather in all the ways that I fall short, I find my validation, my acceptance before God through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even as I walk with the Spirit, I am often tempted to cower back into my slavish ways, and I need to remember my adoption. I am a son. I am a daughter. I am loved and I am accepted through Christ. I urge you to hold fast to that truth To know that there is one who loved you and gave himself for you that leads you by his spirit who lifts you up out of the wallowing pit of sin and self-pity. To be bold, confident, and joyful in Christ by the spirit. But notice how the good news of the gospel continues to get better. Paul says that it's the spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. Friends, the gospel means that not only are you spared hell, you also gain heaven. You have not only received mercy, you've been lavished with grace. The United States President has the power to pardon criminals, and yet he does not then invite them to be part of his family. God is a king that pardons and welcomes us into his family. Every privilege, every right that the true and perfect Son of God has is ours. Friends, we have an elder brother who did not begrudge our sin and rebellion, he did not hoard his riches and glory. Rather, he boldly came to lift us out of the muck, to cleanse us and present us before the Father, to share his inheritance with us. This Jesus, the one and only who pleased the Father, beckons us to join him in this spirit-filled calling to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again, to the pleasure of our God and Father. But well, years later, when after Jean Valjean had cleaned himself up, had hidden himself with a new identity, he rose to prominence as a successful businessman and even mayor of his town. And on one occasion, one of his managers of his factory fires a woman when it is found that she has an illegitimate daughter. This desperate mother pursues a tragic course yielding to a life of immorality in order to support her daughter. And in so doing, contracts a fatal disease. And then as Providence would have it, Valjean comes along this woman. Coming to her aid, he learns of her plight and his own complicity in her dire situation. And in response, he makes a promise to her as he sees that she is dying to care for her daughter Cosette, and after a time of struggle and running from the law, Valjean is able to liberate Cosette from her effective servitude in the home of a wicked innkeeper and raises her as his own daughter. Valjean invests tremendous resources, putting tremendous energy into securing Cosette's future at great risk to himself. And even at that great risk, saves the man's life who would become her husband. Our God is our Father by promise. He adopts us on the basis of promise, though we were illegitimate children. Scorned and rejected, became objects of grace by his rich compassion to spare us and adopt us rather than discard us. And our God and Father has also secured for us a marriage, to a lover who will love us with an everlasting love. There's yet one more important theme from the tale of Les Mis, and that's the vivid distinction, the vivid contrast we have between the two main characters, the police officer Javert and John Valjean. Javert is a man committed to the law, ruthless and pitiless, towards offenders, with a deep obsession to fulfill justice and bring Valjean and put him in prison. On many occasions, Valjean is able to escape his snare. But then the tables turn, and Javert finds himself trapped with Valjean with the upper hand. And though he fully expects Valjean to take his life Valjean refuses. He who had been shown mercy shows mercy and sets his enemy free. Free grace proves too much for Javert. He takes his own life. Those who live by the law will die by the law. And you have a choice to... Live in the flesh to seek to fulfill the law by your own strength. Know this, that it only ends in death. It is the pathway to destruction. It cannot save. And I can say it no better than in the stanza we sang from Rock of Ages earlier. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. Thou alone. Living in the Spirit means living in grace. Resting on the finished work of Christ. Following our elder brother. Secure in the Father's love. We may live lives pleasing to God as well-loved sons daughters. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we are grateful for the rich mercy, the grace you have shown us in Christ, the investment you have made in us to give us your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you might empower and equip us to live lives that please you, that we might keep in step with your spirit, to bring honor to your name, and that others might see the glorious riches of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.